Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. After a week off for my birthday, I know I don't look a day older than 46, I am back. But Thea is, alas, away from the office with some sort of consumptive illness. And you know people think that literary journalists are weak things, constantly coughing into their silk handkerchiefs as they lie abed, having high-minded thoughts. And they are absolutely right. It's like the magic mountain in the TLS most days. But happily, bravely struggling on, perhaps because she doesn't get contaminated by literary fatigue as she does not read the newspaper, is indie pop star and francophone, even francophile, Lucy Dallas. Hello. Hello, Lucy. Are you feeling well? I'm fine, thank you. I'm in rude health. I'm not having any high-minded thoughts at all. Good. Let's try and keep that way over the next 35 minutes or so, Yeah. if we can survive. Uh, We're having a spring sale at the TLS at the moment. If you Google TLS spring sale, you can get 95% off our subscription price for a couple more weeks. Coming up on the show today, Americans, eh? You can't live with them, but they control the whole world. But can we British ever understand them and vice versa? Author Lionel Shriver has reviewed a new book on the tangled relationship between English and American English and will be on the line to tell us more. Now, if I say the name Simon Lays, how much would you know about him? Not that much if you are me, although Lucy is, I am sure, a towering expert on his life, Lucy. That's not exactly how I would phrase it. Towering expert? No, I would never say that. What would you say? Very, very humble. I'd say I've heard of him (laughs) and I know know a little bit. You know a little bit. Well, thankfully, David Coward is on hand to fill in the blanks about this Belgian academic who became the scourge of those intellectuals who were soft on Mao. And we have a new poem by Kate Bingham called This Hair, which is well worth listening to. As is common with many notable quotations, George Bernard Shaw's quip that Britain and America are two countries divided by a common language is not found in his printed works and attributed to him only in tendentious fashion. Oscar Wilde did, in his short story The Canterville Ghost, from 1887, have his narrator say something broadly similar. We have really everything in common with America nowadays except, of course, language. The sentiment has passed into axiom. 
Lionel Shriver this week wisely avoids this particular literary turf war in her review of Lynn Murphy's book The Prodigal Tongue, written partially to question the commonly held British view that American English is an invasive species that will choke and supplant the native word life. There is a word for such a sneer which I shall now mispronounce, merilexidophobia. And as Shriver, who speaks fluent English and American, points out, such an attitude is often misplaced. Sidewalk is a piece of early 17th century English, for example, and fall, used to mean that season of mellow fruitfulness, is of a similar pedigree. Both are squeamishly held by many British people to be the product of America. In contradistinction, Americans fondly attribute quaint, eccentric-sounding words to their snaggletooth cousins from across the Atlantic. A bumbershoot is an American word for an umbrella, though doesn't sound it. Poppycock sounds like something Samuel Johnson would have harumphed goutily into his port, but is Dutch for doll's poop, brought by settlers from the Netherlands to North America. Don't get me started on the word poop, though. Lionel Shriver is here to tell us more. Lionel, welcome. Hi, nice to talk to you. Let's start. Is there a snobbishness, do you think, a sort of prejudice against American English? Yes, uh, the British are very attached to it. (laughs) They think their pronunciation is superior. They think their vocabulary choices are superior. But the the funny thing is uh, there's an insecurity in that. The Americans don't care. They're mildly enamored of the British accent, uh, though... In her book, Lynn Murphy takes that apart a little bit as well. She documents that no Americans uh, do not think that you're more intelligent just because you have a British accent. Quite right, too. This defensiveness on the part of the Brits, which has a certain parallel with the French, that the American language choices have to be shut out, that, that British English is under attack. That's a very defensive position, and it, it, it indicates a lack of belief in the robustness of British English. Is it a relic of empire that we, we, as a nation, we're constantly seeing how we're becoming ever more humble, ever less relevant, and therefore we become protective of our language as a sort of last bastion of English achievement? Yeah, I think so. There's a sense of ownership that's being protected. The, the irony is that one of the great successes of the empire was the export of the language. So it's an achievement. It shouldn't be seen as a threat. Um, yeah, it struck me uh, reading your piece line on that it, it is very much like the French thing, isn't it? Like the, the, they have the Académie Française, which is supposed to sort of guard the so-called purity of the French language. But it seems to me strange that, that English English should behave like this because it's such a hybrid thing anyway. Well, it's the nature of the language. Yeah. It's what has made it a great language. And so that, that defensiveness that keeping other other words out and keeping change out. It's antithetical to the nature of the language and why the language has been so successful. It's the absorbent quality of English. I mean, it has the largest vocabulary of any, any, any language in the world, mm. and it keeps going up. I mean, the um, OED can barely keep up with all the additions. Do, do you feel that there are there is really a clear distinction between American English and British English, because I, 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 apart from some sort of variant spellings, you could make an argument that everyone is speaking the same language. There's no real distinction to be drawn. Well, I would say that, say that there are still some differences. You go to the supermarket, whereas, of course, the Americans would go to a grocery store, <laughs> and you still get a trolley 
you do not get a cart. You still get your rubbish collected instead of your trash. But, yeah. Though I've noticed the word trash is making inroads. Well, trash is a Shakespearean word, isn't it? So, I mean, like all these things, there's a, there's a pedigree to it. All of them, I imagine. Yeah. You know, that said, that there are still some distinctions and there's some expressions you simply wouldn't hear in the United States and vice versa. They are mashing up. Yeah. Okay? And that's, that process has been sped up enormously by television. I think television far more even than film television we're watching each other's tv yeah mm. you know this whole box set phenomenon the wire being imported over here the sopranos but you know it also it works the other direction i mean the americans were watching night manager yeah downton abbey i suppose which is a, oh absolutely a, a, a so we, we don't really talk like downton abbey anymore no if we ever did well yeah that's a good point thank uh, god <laughs> so no, one you're... of the things that i was getting out of the piece i wrote for the tls is that this has become a big professional frustration for me because my publishers harper collins are very uh leery <laughs> of any invasions of british english into my work and um, they got this into their heads uh, quite some time ago that this was the problem with my books. And therefore, they tell all my copy editors that, you know, Shriver uses Britishisms that have to be expunged. The problem is that they're using, you know, 22-year-old uh, just out of university copy editors, because those are the only people who will work for no money. And their vocabularies have not reached maturity, let's just put it that way. And so every word they encounter that they don't know, instead of looking it up, they just decide it's a British usage and has to go. And so I end up lavishing hours on copy editing, going online and documenting the etymology of all these, you know, often just very American word choices or, or at least words that are shared and commonplace between both countries. You give a great example of that, where pica, which I thought did sound like a sort of cockney word from the 17th century, yeah. comes from California. Well, it's from the gold rush. Yeah. Right? From so, I mean, it couldn't be more American. I'm interested. Why don't they want... Because you, you're an author who um, is American but has lived a long time uh, in England. Why, as a publishing house, don't they want to see, hear you talking in a vocabulary rich in, in the language of both nations? Why would they want to preserve you in the aspect of Americanness? Well, I mean, I will, I will at least defend them on the point that when I'm sending a book in the United States, then the American characters, for the most part, should probably be using yeah. American usage. I mean, they shouldn't be getting a, a shopping trolley, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fair. Um, so, you know, I'm on side with that. But what with all this... Uh, uh, miscegenation of our lingo going on, and it is happening apace. My characters are the only characters in the United States who can't say spot on. Because what? it sounds too British. To they, because, the... because, you know, I'm having uh, my ear contaminated. But meanwhile, yeah. all the other writers can pick up these expressions. I mean, I, I see this in, uh, you know, op-eds and all the time. People have started saying, um, at the end of the day... 
they'll call something a political idea dodgy or dicey, yeah. and they think it's incredibly snappy, right? <laughs> yeah. but incredibly I'm snappy. not allowed to use <laughs> these words. But what about in your narrative? Because uh, leaving aside, if you're writing American characters, they should speak, I suppose, a recognizably American idiolect. But uh, your narrative voice, Lionel, do you feel that has changed over the years you've lived in Britain? Do you feel that you, you speak with different terms in, in, at the front of your mind? Well, I try to be able to change channels. Okay. And that's especially the case writing with fiction. That's less the case with nonfiction, and I do allow myself to use British language if I want to, because, I mean, I've been here for 30 years, so I think I've earned it. You know, when you live that long around a set of word choices, then they get into your head. But when I'm writing fiction that's set in the U.S., then I try to just change that channel and think in American. Are there any uh, hills you're willing, you, you want to die on in terms of Americanisms you, you'd keep, the aluminum versus aluminium? Or, uh, the one I'm always struck by in American, they say they could care less when they mean they couldn't care less. That seems to be a, be a, be a split. Well, that is, uh, actually, that's exactly the kind of thing that uh, the author of this book points out is a problem in both cultures. Okay, what, what, and what's the outcome? What's, what's, what, does, what does she say? That, that, that's... that both Americans and Brits make the same mistake. Oh, it's just the same. And, 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 and you know, that's a very British uh, assumption, that because it's wrong, it must be American. <laughs> well, yeah, although I'm not sure I've ever heard a non-American say... Really? Okay. Well, I don't know, but maybe you're I right. have. Have you? Okay. Well, yeah. I, this is this is my this is my horrible colonialist attitude that I didn't think I possessed coming up without me realising. We've exposed you. You've exposed me. <laughs> it's in your DNA. I know, you I know, it, Apparently, uh, uh, this sounds like a fun book. Is this a worthwhile read? Because because not every book we discuss, you can often have interesting discussions about not very good books. But this feels like a book that's probably worth everyone going to to, to track down and find and read. If these are issues that interest you, this is the book to read. What I like about it is that it defies your expectations. And usually, this kind of book is, um, as I note in the review, really lightweight. It's uh, often what people do. They've come over as, say, a spouse of somebody. Uh, say, an, it's always an American, right? Needs something to do. Spends six months to a year in Britain and and writes a sprightly account of all the quaint differences between the two cultures, yeah. including the the language differences. Yeah. This is not that book. This is much more studious, although written with. A sense of mischief. Yeah. So, and it's very well written. I should qualify. So it's it's entertaining, but it's got some substance, and it's not out to flatter the Brits. Quite right. Oh, that, that that kind of lightweight thing that I'm talking about is always fawning at is its it? core, and it's always about trying to belong, and it's always about you know showing how how much you've noticed and yeah. and how you've re, you know you've become one of the locals and you really understand them and it's just you know, i'm sure for the british audience it completely backfires and it's only faintly interesting to the to the american audience this one i think is much more written for the brits because it it is out to discourage the british from feeling superior from adopting that defensive and paranoid stance in, re- in relation to Americans, and it undermines all of their assumptions about where different re- expressions come from. 
Well, that sounds like a pretty good recommendation. Serves us right, yes, no yeah. doubt. Goddamn Brits. Lionel yeah, it's Shaw- a good read. I it's mean, a good it's read, really yeah. enjoyable. As is your piece, Lionel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Have you ever heard a non-American say could care less? I don't think I've ever heard anyone say could oh, care God, less. It's me, then. It might be just my, pre- my prejudice. You've met one person who said it I and got met, yeah. all crossed. I, love, I bow to nobody in my love for America and its language and its authors and its sports and its beers... And so I'm I'm the la- the last person to be sniffy about America. Yeah, no, I don't I don't understand I don't understand the attitude that tries to defend any language from any other bits coming in. It's just it, it's it's an odd attitude and totally pointless. Particularly as English is basically a mix of it's Latin, yeah, French, exactly. and it's a hybrid Norwegian from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, aren't we aren't we sensible? Aren't we marvelous? Yeah, marvelous. Even though we're British. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Simon Lays, born Pierre Reitman to a great Belgian family in 1935, was a renowned figure of cultural cross-pollination. He felt the pull of wandering travel from a young age, ever the lot, he thought, of people born in small countries who inherit less nourishing cultures and graze on their neighbours' richer pastures. An accomplished seaman, he found himself at the age of 19 in the China of the Cultural Revolution. He fell instantly in love with China, its people and its culture, and after a bumpy start, married a Chinese Catholic woman. His proximity to Maoism made him a fervent critic and a notable polemicist against much of the Western pro-Mao fervour of the period. In David Coward's review of Philippe Paquet's biography, we get the sense of the man, his silky writing skills, his determination to testify journalistically to overlooked outrages. Coward's final summation makes you surely want to hear more about someone who is a mixture of Don Quixote, George Orwell, Mother Teresa and Confucius. Well, you're in luck because David Coward joins Lucy and me now. David, hello. Hello. 
How well known is Simon Lays now? He died in 2016. How much is he is he is he familiar to people? Well, I think he's he's very well known in uh, in Chinese studies circles, but I think in France his reputation is uh, rather variegated. Some people admire what he did, but uh, a lot of them, of course, uh, still rather uh, begrudge the fact that um, he took the wind out of the sails of uh, the the intellectual movement post-1968 in France. Well, let's t- explain how he got so interested in China, because it, you, there was nothing necessarily in his background that would have led him to that. Well, how did he end up a, 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 an expert in China? Um, well, he, he, he embarked on a various, uh, a, a, a varied course of uh, university studies, part of which was Chinese studies, and he managed to get a grant that took him to the to the Far East, and immediately fell in love with the place. Um, he tended to regard it as a, a kind of, uh, not not as a place, but more as a state of mind, and his his vision of China really was one of the the great Chinese cultural tradition. Um, which um, he thought uh, in the mid '50s, when the when when China was being re- re- restru- reconstructed, um, that um, everything was going well. But when he moved to the to the Far East, first to Singapore and then to Hong Kong, um, he, he he could read the the local newspapers. Um, and he saw the bodies floating down the river, and he suddenly got a, a, a vision that Mao's China had gone gone terribly wrong somewhere. And you call him the man who did for Mao. In France and Europe at the time, w- w- was everyone still very much on the Mao bandwagon? Well, just... I, think, I mean, after 1968, there was a tremendous movement that was, well, I suppose, utopian in nature. At the time when Saint-Germain uh, rang with, you know, because lots of little little factories and workshops in Saint-Germain at, uh, at the time, uh, which were knocking out new literary theories every 10 minutes or so. They've all sort of gone away now. But in the 1970s, it was all happening. Everybody was very cross with the right. And there was a gang that... Uh, Centered on the on the, the, the magazine Tel Kel, uh, people like uh, Christeva and Solers and Bart and Sartre, of course, um, joined in. Um, he thought that Mao's revolution was going to bring about the new vision of the East, the new the new world of the East. Whereas Leys soon realised that Mao's cultural revolution wasn't particularly uh, cultural at all, uh, nor was it a revolution. It was, in fact, uh, an out-and-out land grab. And the whole fabric of China, to his sense, the culture of China, the cultural tradition of China, was being ruined by these people who had come along and decided that the world should be changed according to their view of things. Now, in France and in Europe generally, um, people tended to think that Mao Zedong was a, was a good thing. Uh, but in fact, Simon Lace showed, um, he kept a diary of, of what he'd seen when he was living in Hong Kong. He published it as The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, and it was the first of a couple of volumes in which he um, exposed what was really going on in China, the, the deaths the forced labor camps and the rest of it, uh, the the uprooting of the whole of the middle class who were sent to uh, improve themselves in country areas and and learn new skills and so on. He he exposed the whole sham. And when Tel Kel and the... um, uh, and its uh, and its members 
paid a visit to China in April 1974, they soon realized that their, their view of it was quite wrong and that Simon Leys was quite right. And they went rather quiet after that. <laughs> did they, they didn't admit to it at the time, did they? They didn't say, oh, you were right. Actually, there's more to this than... No, no, they didn't, no, they didn't I, care for him at all. No, no, that's what I, I mean, thought. At, at one point, he applied for a job in a Paris university and he was really blacklisted, I suppose. I think it's, I think it's difficult for us in Britain to understand how important Sartre was as well. But he, I mean, he was a huge figure, wasn't he? So it was very, very unfashionable to say, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about, this is well, wrong. Well, yes, he thought Sartre was a windbag. Yes. Um, but, I don't suppose I mean, there was it, anyone it, else saying that at the well, time. Yes, really. there, were, there were a few others. Yes, there were a few others. I mean, it, you know, after the war, there was a little group of right-wing writers who uh, objected to the fact that uh, French culture had been annexed by the left. Um, yeah. And certainly there was one uh, very interesting man, Claude Roy, who was a poet and cultural observer. I mean, he thought that uh, Simon Les had got it absolutely spot on. So, so the, he did have defenders, but of course the, 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 you know, the, the, the fashionable people who always occupy the moral high ground, they had the loudest voices and the best ways of um, expressing what they had to say. And I have uh, read somewhere that, that there are people who try to defend that position now by saying that, well, they were wrong about Mao because obviously there was a lot of, there was a huge amount of suffering and death and famine and cruelty and all sorts of things, but that they it made them think about human rights and uh, the situation of the workers and things like that. That was what got, that was what got Sartre engagé and so then, actually, they, they looked at what France was doing and what was happening in France and in other places, and so they argue that things got better so by So by misunderstanding what was going on with Mao in China, they, they, they profitably considered what was going on in France. Well, it made them think about, about people and workers and rights. and I mean, I'm not saying this is not my line, but this is a defence that has been used. Well, I mean, there, I mean one, of, one, of the, um, one of the telcare group, Kisteva, uh, wrote a book about uh, Chinese women and she made them made them out to be heroines as you say of a new kind of utopia i think that the real change came after the after the death of mao and then there was the gang of four there was a lot of squabbling and pol- yeah. pol- politicking uh, and then you know deng's uh, reconstruction his, his reforms uh, kicked in and i think it's sort of um, it's gone on from, from there. I mean, Chinese, China continued to be a very closed society for a very long time. And it's only recently, I suppose, that with the embracing of the, the, the liberal market, uh, free market economy within limits, that China really has um, rejoined the community of nations. Lays, he ends up in Australia in, in the 70s, doesn't he, as, yeah. a, as a professor. Uh, but what other areas of intellectual dispute and debate did he get into? He had a row with Christopher Hitchens about Christopher's negative view of Mother Teresa. Yeah, that's right. Simon Les was a Catholic, um, a devout Catholic, and and he took uh, umbrage, I think. He got very cross with Christopher Hitchens for being rude about Mother Teresa. But I think they, they ended up, I think they fought it to a draw, really. They both respected each other because they both thought each other were very clever. And what sort of academic was he? Did, did he have an ideal of what an academic thinker should be? Oh, know? yes, and uh, th- that was one very odd, uh, to my mind, side of his character. He was a very idealistic man. 
his ideal was the was that of the gentleman of Confucius, who is a uh, belongs not to the social elite, not gentleman in that sense, but a, one who belongs to the moral and intellectualist elite, one who thinks that thought and right and justice are quite important things. Is that a terrible thing for an academic to to, to cherish? Well, um, the way in which he tran- tried to translate that into some sort of reality was, I mean, for example, in his attitude towards translation, he thought that translation ought not to be done for money, and there should be no hurry about it, and it should be done as perfectly as possible. And his idea of, uh. of the of the university would would be a place where um, uh, sagacious teachers. Uh, welcomed willing and inquiring students into an environment, I, I don't know, buildings were never mentioned, where the students learned what the, their elders taught them. There, were, there was no courses, there were no fees, there were no examinations. So was he a bit of an elitist, do you think, David, in, um, in some ways? This sounds it sounds it sounds a bit rarefied. This this it, yeah, I think so. And and it, it and it, I think he he got into um, he wasn't very popular in uh, in in certain university circles in uh, in Australia. And he, and he took early retirement because he didn't really like the way in which modern universities were going. And in fact, I suppose you could see that he wasn't the only one. No. <laughs> uh, after you've read this book and with what you know about him, David, are you fond of him? Do you, do, do you feel fondness at the end of this book? Well, I think he was a very austere man. Uh, his standards were, were very high and he lived up to them uh, himself. But I think, I myself, I don't think would be able to live up to, uh, to, to the kind of standards that, uh, that he required. But I suppose it's an achievement of sorts, him managing to do it for himself. Oh yes, I think so, and he and he did it very well because he took a very moral view of his love of China, and he made it stick. Well, it's a fascinating piece and a fascinating man, David Carr. Thank you very much. Well, can I just say one Go, more thing course. about the the, the the translation? is absolutely superb, uh, and ah. I think that uh, Simon Les would uh, would very much approve of, uh, of 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 the translation. Which is by Ju- Julie Rose. I should have yes, said that I at the mean, beginning. It's so important, really. That translation i was just reading a review of a, of a book by um, marcel pagnol which was translated you know the hero jean de florette yeah. and so on and it came out in well, in the early 60s and it was translated this worryingly inadequately was the reviewer in the times his verdict on it and and i think as a result pagnol's reputation as a as a writer of prose, has suffered in the English-speaking world. I mean, so that a translator really has the reputation of, of a writer in his or her hands. And that's an opinion probably Simone Lays would agree with. Mm. Well, I hope so, because yeah. <laughs> I think it's quite right. Yeah. David, thank you very much. <laughs> OK, Take thank care. you very much. Thank Bye-bye. You. It's quite right. We actually always... We do do this, but when we, when we talk about books, we should always say translated yes. by, yeah. and it's Julie Rose, and that's uh, for David Coward, who's... Uh, who is himself a wonderful translator. Yeah, to say that that's a fine translation is quite a thing, isn't it? Yes, and, and as he says, that will be of paramount importance to Simon Lays, whether it was whether it was well done. And that's almost all we have time for today. We will shortly hear Kate Bingham read her poem, published this week in the TLS, called This Hair. Before that, let me thank David Coward and Lionel Shriver, and of course, you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Did you have fun? I did, of course. Do not you, Lucy, find yourself a copy of the TLS or subscribe online. This week we have stuff on Shakespeare, the Egyptian election and Baron von Richthofen, among much else. Next week, Lucy, 
I can leave this to you, actually. What's the theme of the paper? Am I really allowed to tell? Yeah, and what's, what do we have on the cover? All right, well, the theme of the paper is graphic novels, I think we can say, and cartoons. Comics. Comics. Yes. I'm not going to say, I don't think I should say exactly what it is. Okay. But shall I say, can I say the publication it's related to? Yes. It is related to the wonderful publication that is The Beano. Which may or may not have contributed the cover image. But let's leave everyone absolutely agog. The notion of that. Yeah. The TLS and Beano mashup (laughs) is barely a week away. We'll be talking about that here. But to end this week's show, we're joined by Kate Bingham to read what's a beautiful poem published in the paper. Kate, hello. Hello there. Tell us about this poem. It's a lovely thing. This hair, it's called. Absolutely. Uh, It's a poem that depends on the title, so it all hangs off that first title. It's one long sentence, and uh, it started its life as a sonnet, but grew, uh, as hair does, into its own shape. (laughs) How lovely. Well, we're going to, to hear it now. Until next week, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. This hair, that used to be the colour of gold, spun gold, my mother said, that no one expected my only distinguishing feature, gold that grew no matter what I did, and grew through me and made me good, a girl to have and hold from gold to ginger, sand to henna red, to this hot flush of wash-in pink shampoo, a long, rose-madder-tinted memory of hair that slowly grows as I grow old, more precious. Every wiry hair I shed picked off my clothes with a sigh and said goodbye to, trailed through dust, or unceremoniously swept into landfill. Hair my fingers fold in hairpin bends, or follow thread by thread, each line a thought of something not thought through, a daydream, scribbles in a diary of lost concentration, loose and cold at my elbow, handfuls of hair torn from my head like some frustrated fine-tooth comb review of its own story, this limp fantasy, this hair I should have loved though I was told it wouldn't last, hangs on, as soft and dead as ever, changed but changing, no less true than when its former beauty flattered me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.